Hey friends, thank you so much for joining us on the Abbey Podcast. We are working to help you notice and nurture the work of God in your life, in the life of others, and in the world around you. One small thought we'd ask you to keep in mind is that our teachings, our conversations, and the stories that we tell are primarily meant for our local faith community in Columbus, Ohio. We're happy to share this with you as a gift, and we hope that it could serve you in some way. Thank you so much for being here. If you are new or newish with us, uh, my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really great to have you. Um, Before I launch in, I want to highlight a couple of things, which is, um, you know, there are announcements on the back of your bulletin, and they're also on the website, and if you're ever wondering about how you can get more engaged or involved, I'd love to uh, encourage you to show up to something. Um, Next week is a blue Christmas service. Uh, led by our pastor, Hannah Esterbrook, who's in New York City celebrating the birth of her husband, Brian. So if you guys see Brian around town, wish him a happy birthday. Um, I think they're having some fun in New York City. Um, And I also want to highlight something else for you uh, that's not on your bulletin, but on January 12th, uh, if you are in the new or newish category and you're curious to learn more about what it is that we're doing here at Franklinton Abbey, which is a contemplative church plant as part of the vineyard. We're about three or four years into planting this faith community. And and part of what's driving what we're doing is we're sort of wondering what would it look like for our lives to slow down enough to pay attention to what God is doing in us. And then by extension, that grows our capacity to pay attention to what God is doing around us. And I don't know about you, but... During the holiday season, during Christmas and New Year's and all of the things that go into that, I'm reminded about how crazy our culture is um, in terms of how fast-moving and busy uh, things are. Do you guys know that you can get same-day delivery from Amazon now? Who who needs that? I mean, can we just be honest? Um, How many of you have placed a same-day delivery with Amazon? Yeah, okay. All right, so apparently... The thing that we didn't think we needed, we needed. So um, anyway, I just want to let you know that one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to help you recognize that we don't have to participate in the crazy, the fast-paced crazy of the world around us. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, boycott Amazon. I love Amazon. What I am saying is that there are things that we can do to train our expectations and our our bodies and the way we think and what we expect and how we feel to slow the whole thing down. And um, I'm not even preaching yet. I just wanted to say to you that that's what we're trying to do. And so much of what we're trying to do is oriented around this question, why are we moving so fast and why are we so tired? And I just recognized that when I began to slow my life down and I began to practice things like silence and solitude and stillness and celebration with friends, um, things began to change in me. I began to become present to ways in which I needed to show up differently in my relationships with people and 
in my marriage and in my fathering and my friendships. And all of that for me came as I partnered with Jesus in slowing my life down and I took on a posture of listening. Does that make sense? So I'm like way off notes. I'm a couple minutes in and I'm not even preaching yet. I'm just saying I want to free us from the hustle. And that's what this uh, community is, is oriented around. So if you are new with us, uh, feel free to linger a bit. Love to, I'd love to meet you and, and share with you a little bit more. Um, would you pray with me? I'd love just to pray before I launch in. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence. Oh, we thank you for our life together. We thank you um, for the friends of ours that are part of this community that are not here. We pray, God, that you'd be with the friends that are sick and the ones that are traveling out of town to be with family. God, we thank you so much for the life that we have in you. Come, Holy Spirit. God, would you, would you speak a word today? Would you give a force to the words I have chosen in a way that means that you are breathing on them? In Christ's name, amen. So some of you may be familiar with the restaurant here in town called the North Star Cafe. How many of you have ever eaten at the North Star Cafe? Okay, you are missing out if you have not. Um, about 13 years ago, I used to work at the North Star Cafe. And I was, I was part of the team of people that was trying to figure out how to make a cool restaurant expand. And so I helped open up the restaurant in Clintonville. And um, for a short season of my life, I wore a chef coat. And for what that means is about 60 or 70 hours a week, I was chopping potatoes and vegetables and patting veggie burgers and dishing out cloud nine pancakes and making sure that every dish that passed through the window came out perfectly. And in that fancy chef coat that I wore, we were encouraged to um, carry around a little stainless steel ruler that we would slide here because we would often measure the cuts of our vegetables because every vegetable and everything that we did in that kitchen had a precision to it that is why it became a wonderful place to eat. So for example, chopping onions, onions were supposed to be about an eighth of an inch thick, and the Granny Smith ap apples were supposed to be about a quarter to a half inch thick on two sides, because you know when you're cutting an apple, it's got one curved side, and you can't possibly make it a perfect cube. But every once in a while, you were supposed to pull out that little ruler and begin to measure to make sure that all of the cuts were precise. And as a manager and a partner, I know some of you are like, that's crazy. <laughs> as a manager and a partner, what we would do is before every single shift, is a group of us would order one thing from every, from one item, one, one item of the entire menu. So every piece of the menu would come out all at once, and we would sit down to this amazing spread. And the reason that we did that is that we were looking and we were tasting and we were comparing what we were looking and tasting to the idealized form that was in our mind of what the perfect veggie burger was supposed to look like or what the sweet basil burrito was supposed to look like. Does this make sense? 
That was like the most blissful like 10 minutes of my day. But here's the thing is that when you're preparing in a restaurant environment for lots and lots of people to come through the doors, this is not like a sit-down spread where you are savoring. You are looking and you are tasting and everything is moving really quickly. And there's more hustle there than you could possibly imagine, which is why I only lasted a year. I had to give it up. But this practice of constantly comparing what we're making to an idealized standard of what each item was supposed to look like was really what our job was about. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to leave you with this short story about the North Star Cafe until almost the very end. But then we're going to bring it back together. Does that sound okay? So today is the, the third Sunday of Advent. And uh, this is the Sunday in which our more liturgical streams would be lighting this beautiful rose-colored candle, which signifies joy. And so this is the third Sunday of Advent, and we're going to talk a little about joy. And what I want to do is I want to describe for you what makes joy possible, this kind of joy as defined by Henry Nouwen. He says this, that joy is the experience of knowing that you're unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death, can take that love away. I want to talk with you about joy and new creation and the good news of incarnation. Incarnation is a $50 religious word that means that God became flesh. And our passage of scripture uh, this afternoon comes from the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is really different than the other Gospels. I don't know if you've ever noticed that if you are a Bible reader. But the Gospel of John takes on an entirely different form than the other stories that are told Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And part of the reason is that is that the Gospel of John is written 40 or so years after those other guys. It's written an entire generation later, and in that generation, it's written around 90 to 100 A.D., and Jesus died around 35 A.D., so in the generation that has passed, brand new questions have arisen for what it means to have life with God in Jesus. What does it mean to be reconciled to God through Jesus? Lots and lots of questions about the origin story of this Jewish peasant rabbi who claimed to be the savior of the world. Lots of new questions were emerging. All of the people at this time who were finding life in Jesus, who were looking for life with God and finding life with Jesus, had never really met him in the flesh. And by the time that John is writing his story of Jesus, he's addressing these questions that people didn't have when the story first began. And he's writing to a predominantly Greek audience because by this time, there are 100,000 Greek-speaking Christians for every one Jewish-speaking Christian. The entire story exploded to the Greek-speaking world and kind of took over the religious environment of many places. And yet it was still such a small percentage of people. But most of the people who were coming into life with God would have been speaking Greek at the time. 
And the questions that the Greek-speaking followers of Jesus were asking were not the same questions that the Jewish and Hebrew-speaking followers of Jesus were asking. And so I want to start with this, and I want to say I don't know what everyone's experience of God is like, but before we jump into the text this afternoon and before you enter a new year, before you leave behind a decade, I want you to know that it's okay to ask questions that the generation before you was not asking. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to feel tension with how you position yourself in relation to the Creator. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing as as I have conversation with people is that lots and lots of people are asking questions that a generation ago people weren't asking. And this is actually the context and the environment in which John begins to address these new questions about the origin story of Jesus. Where does this guy come from? What is he about? And here's the thing. The questions that you're holding and the tensions that you might have in your life with God, and listen, some of you don't actually have tension in your life with God. Some of you feel like like things actually make sense. Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to create an environment for people who feel like this story makes total sense and for for people who feel like this story is unraveling a little bit. And our hope is that as we bring these two people together, that we would be able to share in life and community together. And so if you are holding tensions and questions as you head into a new decade, you guys know that we start a new decade like in a couple weeks, right? As you're holding questions about life with God, I want you to be at ease. And I want you to hear that it's okay to be asking questions. And particularly because God himself came into the world and lived in the midst of so much tension. So John is writing a slightly different kind of story to a different kind of people. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, um, I read these words to you from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, And he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. And later on in that same chapter, we read this, that God said, let us make mankind, that's you and me, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all of the wild animals, and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in the context of that passage a couple weeks ago, I told you a story about the creation narrative that was meant to counteract the creation narrative that prevailed in the day. If you were living uh, at the time where you would have read the the account of creation in Genesis, again, I'm just reminding you of a couple weeks ago, you would have been living in a narrative 
a creation myth, a creation story about a god who was male who conquered a female god and created the world with the woman's dead body parts. That was the creation narrative of the day. And so it's in the midst of that creation narrative that the writers of Genesis are pushing back against that creation narrative to tell a better story. To tell a story about a loving God who hovered over the chaos of the world like a dove flying over the waters of the sea, wooing the chaos into creation with his own voice, with his word. Genesis says that God spoke and things came into being. It said that that there was chaos all around and God flew like a dove above the chaos through his spirit and wooed the chaos into life. And there was a new creation story that people had to wrestle with and begin to uncover what it meant to have life with this new God that didn't create out of violence. Does this make sense? And then there was a poem about how God created humans to be in His image and likeness in the world, that God created you and I to be like Him and to join Him in co-ruling over the world. And I want you to keep in mind the passage of two weeks ago as I read our passage for this afternoon, which is written in your bulletin, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 1. You guys with me? Okay. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Just stop right there for a second. Do you see that John is borrowing some language from Genesis here? He's using intentional language from Genesis, from this Genesis creation narrative. He's using language like in the beginning, and light, light shining into the darkness. There are cues here for what John is trying to do. So skip down um, with me in verse 9. He says this. He says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, but born from God. Now verse 14. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if I were to stand up, and I were to begin to tell you a story, and I started my story like this. A long time ago, 
in a galaxy far, far away. What kind of story am I about to tell you? A Star Wars story, that's right, okay? It's good, you guys are good. You guys know there's another movie coming out? It's pretty amazing. You would immediately know what kind of story that I was telling, or at least you would know the kind of story that I was going to try to tell. You would know that I'm telling either a prequel or a sequel, or I'm sure, I'm sure they will figure out a way to extend this again, of a Star Wars story. Or what about this one? In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobby. You guys are amazing. You literary geniuses, you. In the story, in the ground, there lived a hobbit. If I were to start my story with that opening phrase, in a hole in the ground, there lived dot, 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 you would know that I was building off something that had come before me, right? You would instinctively know that I was about to tell some sort of J.R.R.R. Tolkien story, or an extension of The Hobbit, or The Lord of the Rings, or some other story like that. If I were to do that, I would be letting my readers of my story know that I'm about to tell a version of the story that has come before. Does this make sense? John is using the first line of the creation narrative because he's trying to clue his readers into the kind of story that he's about to tell. And he's about to tell a story about creation. But it's a new story, which makes it a new creation story. Does that make sense? There is some real beauty here in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is basically saying, I'm going to tell you another creation story. That the same God who was wooing chaos at the beginning with his voice is up to something new. This is the announcement that John is making. So if you were a Jewish man or a Jewish woman steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures from the time that you were a child and someone writes a new story whose opening lines are in the beginning, what you would know to be true is that John is going to tell a story about life and about light breaking into the darkness. And that is the kind of story that he begins to tell. He's telling a new creation story. That what God began long, long ago, he is starting up again. Here's the thing. If you and I were to sit down and read the entire Gospel of John together, there would be other clues along the way that would reveal to you and I that, in fact, this is a new creation story. How many of you know how many days were part of the first creation story? How many days? Seven days of creation. If you sit down and read the Gospel of John, you will notice that the number seven comes up several times. In fact, just in the first half of John, uh, people give Jesus seven different titles. So these little clues along the way where John is whispering, no, he's shouting, I am telling a new creation story. Another one of these clues is that as you read along in the Gospel of John, you'll notice that there are these miracles that happen 
And John begins to enumerate them and number them, and he begins to say, this is the first sign that Jesus did. And then later on, he says that this is the second sign that Jesus did. And then he trails off, and he stops numbering them. But if you go back and are paying close attention, and you begin to count the signs or the miracles that John reports from Jesus, what you'll count is, I, how many? Seven signs. John's gospel is about new creation. Something new is happening, and he is trying to announce it. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to pause for a moment for some reflection right here. I'm wondering if you would be willing to be open to the possibility that God would want to do some new creation in you. That however old your story of faith is, that it's possible that God wants to do a new creation story in you in this upcoming year, 2020. If you could imagine this time next year, what would you want to be true about your life with God? And what would you want to be true about your marriage? or your friendships, or the way that you interact with the world, if you could cry out to God, if you could quietly sit before God and begin to ask God to do something new in your life, what is it that you would ask Him? Friends, we are part of a new creation story, and all along the way, God is wanting to do new creation work inside of you and inside of me, and I want to encourage you to take some time before the end of the year or at the beginning of the year and ask the question, what is the new creation work that God is going to do in my life this year? And there's all sorts of fancy ways for you to do that. I'm sure someone on Instagram has something for you to help you do that, to choose a word or to bullet journal your year or whatever it is for you. It doesn't matter what it is, just I'm encouraging you to sit before God and ask God to speak new word into your life this, this year. Can we do that? Okay. The good news for you today is that God poured himself out into the world in order to do something new. In you and in me and in all of creation. This pouring out into the world is new creation. And so when we read the Gospel of John, we read a story about first creation, about new creation, but we, we also read something else if we continue to look deeper. Remember that John is writing predominantly to a Greek audience. And all throughout the Greek-speaking world, philosophical in- inquiry was just sort of par for the course. If you were an educated Greek speaker living in the first few centuries, your education would have included people like Plato and Aristotle and Euripides, and you would have been studying the the Stoic philosophers, and all of these different streams of thinking would have just been part of your everyday existence. Like these would have been people that you would have followed, all of these Greek teachers. And... um, 
No matter what philosophical principle or religious form or way of thinking emerged in the Greek world, all different thoughts began to emerge. One thing everyone sort of agreed upon, which is amazing if you think about it, right? All of these different teachings, all of these different political philosophies, all of these ways of trying to understand the world, they actually predominantly agreed on basically one thing, which is this. It all had to start somewhere. That what everybody began to realize is that we are here and that we did not make ourselves. There had to have been some force or power or something that holds all of this together. And while they couldn't agree on exactly the form or the shape of that thing, predominantly they all agreed to call it the same thing, which was the logos. This is the Greek word for the rational kind of energy and power of life that was a great, great mystery to the Greek-speaking world. Does this make sense? So, stay in that mindset. I want to reread this passage. Um, John 1, 1 to 5 in verse 14. And what I want to do is I want to replace the word logos in there. Here's here's the funny part about what I'm about to say. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. The word that's translated from logos in the English is the word word. So, as I read this, I'm going to replace the word, word, with logos, which is the the kind of force and the energy and all of the mystery that that they would have assigned to all of the things that they couldn't figure out. So read with me, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He, the Logos, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So skip down with me to verse 14. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So not only is John saying that in the middle of this old creation there's a new one that's breaking in, he's also saying this, the unnamed force that you've been talking about and philosophizing all of this time, that impersonal, perfect, platonic form of a thing that you have been grasping at, that God of the gap thing of all of the mystery that you assign to the things that you don't understand, took on a body and became flesh and joined us in the struggle here on earth. 
That godlike force that you have called the Logos became a human being who embodied love like no one else. Guys, I can't sort of overestimate the thrust of how the people who first read the Gospel of John would have been hearing this. It would have been so disorienting because there's a certain safety in pushing the things that you can't understand far away from you. Does that make sense? I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you kind of bump up against something that you don't understand. You just sort of set it on a shelf of things that I don't understand. Does that ever happen to anybody? Or maybe it's just me. Okay. I mean, it's not like a real shelf, but like in my mind it is. And let me tell you, it's full of stuff. And if you don't have kids, when you have kids, the shelf becomes like two shelves. Because they ask these questions. And it's like, I actually have no idea how to answer your question. And there's a a certain safety in assigning mystery to lots and lots of things and sticking it on a shelf. And what John is saying is all of that mystery and all of the force that you can't quite understand actually put on human flesh and came and lived and dwelt among us to the degree that we now have to sort of face it. That the God of the gaps, all of the things that you don't understand, took on the form of a person. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what are some of the uncomfortable questions that you're holding? Not just about God, but just about your life. I mean, I assume that in a room like this, there are lots of people whose life has not quite turned out how you imagined it would. Anybody relate to that? Can everyone relate to that? Okay. Friends, we live in a tremendous amount of mystery and tension. And we hold a tremendous amount of questions in our hands. Questions about the future and questions about the past. And all of those questions, all of the mystery that we sort of put on that shelf, the sort of unanswerable and challenging things, this, this idea that, that we have to keep them at a distance, part of what John is saying is that the force of those questions and the force of that mystery put on a body that you can now interact with. Does this make sense? Now this is not to say that the depth of the questions goes away. And this is not to say that all of our questions get answered. But what it is saying is that there is a person that you can talk to about all of it. The Logos is not an impersonal force. The Logos is a person. And he made you He loves you, and he wants life with you. 
That's a better story, isn't it? So go back with me to scones and focaccia and flatbread. So I told you this story about how we had in mind in the restaurant world this perfect representation of all of these little dishes. And every entree and every scone and every flatbread, we had in our minds the way that they were supposed to look every single time they came out of the kitchen. And every once in a while, there was a line cook that would pull the veggie burger out of the cheese melter. Do you guys know that there's a cheese melter? It's all it does is melt cheese. It's amazing. And he would put it on a bun, and he would sit it up there, and he would sort of notice that it was like it was supposed to be, like it was like a perfect veggie burger. And he would call all the other line cooks around and he would say, hey, look at that cheese melt. I'm not joking, this happened all of the time. Or, or there would be a, a burrito or, or some salad that was like, like as close to the perfect platonic form of salad that you could possibly imagine. And the salad person would call a couple of his buddies over and say, hey, look at that salad, isn't that amazing? And he would put it up in the window and for a brief moment we would gather around it and we would say, yes, that's an amazing salad. We were really focused. Some of you are like, I am, I am definitely eating there. <laughs> Most of the time, when we made something that didn't measure up, there was no real shame in it. A couple times, my scones came out a little extra brown because I forgot to egg wash them. And because we were making perfect scones or near-perfect scones almost every single day, when we found some scones that came out of the oven that were just a little darker than they were supposed to be, we noticed. We noticed. Um, when I was in my training, I'd spent about three months sort of uh, cooking and baking and prepping and, and, um, and washing dishes and everything throughout the entire restaurant. And I learned from people who had gone before me and who were much better at it. And uh, I remember specifically the week that I was... Um, in the bakery section of the restaurant. And I remember I cooked the bread a little too long and I salted a little too much and I was exhausted and I was not about to start from scratch again because cooking that bread is quite the process. It's a couple hour process. And one of the owners happened to stop by to taste my bread and he tasted my bread and said, wow, it tastes just like a ballpark pretzel. And that was not a good thing. For most of the time, when we found that the thing that we had made was not like the thing that we were supposed to make, there was really no shame involved in it. There was no shame. Um, the presence of a perfect scone or flatbread or veggie burger did not create shame. It just created a model for what each of those things were always meant to look like. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to make a big leap. God, the Logos, the light which shined into the darkness, took on the form of a body, was formed in a mother's womb, was birthed with blood in what the other gospel writers narrate for us as an impossibly humble beginning. And God poured God's self out into the world in the form of a little human who would grow in wisdom 
and stature and live in the tension of this world just like you and I to be a model for us, for what we were always meant to be. God in the flesh is not meant to bring us shame. It's meant to bring us joy. Looking at the life of Jesus is not meant to make you feel embarrassed. It's meant to raise up rejoicing inside of you. The very image of God, the perfect representation of a loving, triune God, shows up in the world as an act of love and rescuing and new creation, and most of us are still struggling to break free from the heavy blanket of shame. As though the reason God showed up was to bring correction. Listen, God did not incarnate himself into the world to shake a finger at us. God incarnated himself into the world to show us what we were always meant to be like. And that is meant to make us excited. Because God is in the process, friends, of making you into that likeness. That's why God came into the world. To make a model to inspire joy. And the really good news is that the work of doing that is his work. God shows up in the world as Jesus and he says, follow my way and you will become like me. Um, next month we're going to look at the fall. We're going to go back to the garden and we're going to look at Adam and Eve and this interesting story about how we lost our place in paradise. The temptation of the tree and the lie in the story is that if we ate from that tree that we would become as God or like God is what the text says. That we would somehow know good and evil. And there's a little truth in that. In that moment of the tree, and we're going to get to this in January, we did learn the difference between good and evil, and there was a consequence for that learning. But there's also a lie that the, that the serpent in the story whispers. And it's a really subtle lie, and the lie is this. If you do this, you will become like God. But what we have to go back and read is that the whole narrative before that is God creating us to already be like him. Does that make sense? Early church father um, Athanasius of Alexandria put it this way. He was made human so that he might make us like God. In other words, God is putting his image in the world again in Jesus as a model and a reminder of where this story and your story is headed. And all of the hardship and the curse and the pain and the sorrow and the affliction and the death gets swallowed up 
as God lives his life and gives his life away in love. That's what the incarnation is about. That's why God came into the world, to swallow all of that stuff up and to give you and I hope and joy of our future glory. And so here's a closing, closing question for you. What would you like to see God do in your life over this next year that would shape you into a greater likeness and greater love like Jesus? How would you like to grow in that? If you could just choose one or two things, and my sense is that there's probably already a couple things that are on your mind. My experience is that most people are pretty aware of the places they're falling short. How many of you are aware of just one place that you'd like, man, I, I wish I could be more patient. I wish I could I wish I could pour my life out into others more. I wish, I wish I could be free from the anxiety that cripples me. I wish I could just have a deeper sense of trust in my finances. As we grow in our likeness of Jesus, these things begin to take shape in us. So I want to challenge you in closing before we head into some, some silence. Is it possible for you to get present to the things about your life that you would like to change without taking on the shame? 